Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's been a grim winter already with record-breaking COVID numbers and crisis standards of care looming on the horizon, but there is a glimmer of hope with soon-to-be-distributed vaccinations. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Idaho Immunization Program Director Sarah Leeds joins me to discuss vaccination rollout in Idaho. And Twin Falls Area Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Sean Berger shared how Magic Valley businesses are faring, as well as whether he thinks the local approach to COVID mitigation is working. But first, this week, a number of prominent Idaho Republicans filed friend of the court briefs or joined existing ones in support of a Texas lawsuit challenging the results of the presidential election in four swing states, despite no evidence of election fraud. That list includes Governor Brad Little, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, and the Idaho Republican Party. Idaho's two House members, Representatives Mike Simpson and Russ Fulcher, were among 126 Republican members of Congress to submit as well. Attorney General Lawrence Wasden declined to join other state attorneys general as a plaintiff in the original lawsuit, however, saying Thursday he was worried it would open the door to other states challenging legal decisions made by Idaho's legislature and governor. Late Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit. Also Thursday, Governor Brad Little held a press conference to discuss how close Idaho is to needing crisis standards of care. Kristen Conley, a COVID-19 ICU nurse with St. Luke's, shared stories of working with some of Idaho's illest patients. What I hear a lot out in the community, and I think Jason touched on this, is a lot of people saying, well, this is not my reality. And that's a common feeling. Like as human beings, we do tend to form beliefs and ideas based on how we perceive and, um, and look at things and what our experience is. And that doesn't necessarily make your reality the truth. And the truth is we are in a pandemic and it's a serious, devastating situation. I see illness and loneliness and fear and isolation. I see so much suffering. Several weeks ago, I took care of a mom um, and her youngest is a year and a half old at best. And she fought really, really hard to live. And she got to the point where she required everything we could throw at her. She was put on the ventilator. She had all the IVs and the infusions to keep her alive. And she fought and she fought so hard and she fought for every breath that she took. And in the end, we couldn't save her. And in the end, she couldn't go home to her family. She couldn't go home to that baby who will never remember her mom. 
this is one story and you can walk into this COVID ICU and you can go from room to room to room to room and you can see this level of suffering and fear and isolation and worry and loneliness story after story and I share this story with you because she matters and every story matters Governor Little declined to make any additional changes to the state's modified stage two mitigation efforts that have been in place for the last month. Meanwhile, Idaho broke a number of records once again this week in daily cases, topping 2,000 for the first time and hit a high of 20 percent positivity last week. The governor emphasized his preference once again for local control as Idaho made national headlines for protests at board members' homes, resulting in one public health meeting in Boise getting shut down. At Thursday's press conference, I asked the governor if he was willing to make any tough calls or if he was still comfortable pushing those decisions to local authorities. What I want is compliance, and, and we're just having an issue. Uh, of my top 10 counties... Uh, the ones with the worst numbers today, 60% uh, of them have a, some kind of a mandate. Uh, that's the issue with the mandate. And in some areas it's working, but in some areas it's not. But what I want is compliance. My goal is to get compliance. That's why we've changed our messaging. That's, but uh, we have been talking about it uh, since last spring about what behavioral modifications people need so that we can keep the people of Idaho safe. As a follow-up, Governor, thank you so much. But nothing is changing from the last time you addressed the state um, on in, in a press conference capacity, capacity a month ago. And so do you really think that Idahoans are going to change their behavior now with nothing substantial changing in the public health order before we hit that crisis standards of care? Well, if you look at the chart behind me, uh, there, there's a lot of things we've done as far as increasing healthcare capacity. There's a lot of things what we're doing as far as making things available. And we're doing a lot of what we're doing on messaging to try and get people to comply. I've got counties that have got mask orders local by the people they know right there and there's no compliance. I'm trying to help the messaging, whether it be a school district, whether it be a county, whether it be a health district, to get that compliance that we need. But we've done a lot of things to increase healthcare capacity. And every state around us is having the same problem. Meanwhile, hospitals continue to warn that Idaho may be getting closer to crisis standards of care. On Friday morning, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare's Board of Directors met to solidify the procedure for declaring that crisis. So what exactly does that mean and how does that affect patients? Crisis standards of care mean that there are no resources left statewide for hospitals to tap into for serving critically ill patients. Hospitals may turn conference rooms or other spaces into clinical care areas and may need to ration ICU beds, ventilators, or other medical equipment, favoring patients with greater chances of survival. In some cases, patients may be turned away. 
Joining me to discuss how the state decides to declare crisis standards of care is Devin Downey, associate producer for Idaho Reports. Devin, you sat through an Idaho Department of Health and Welfare board meeting on Friday morning where they talked about the procedures. Can you tell us a little bit about how they get to the point where they decide that the state needs to declare crisis standards of care? Yeah, for the state to declare the crisis standards, uh, essentially what's going to happen is a hospital is going to have to run out of capacity. They're going to have to go through a checklist that has been set up by the Department of Health and Welfare that will list a bunch of different circumstances or talk about what sort of equipment they have available. Once they have exhausted basically all of their resources, um, we'll go to the Department of Health and Welfare, who will then convene a committee who will go over their own checklist to see if they have exhausted every possible resource. And if that is the case, then the committee will declare the crisis standards of care across the state of Idaho. So it's not going to be a regional approach like a lot of the other things we've seen uh, during this pandemic. It's going to be something that affects the whole state. Now, to be clear, it's not just if one hospital reaches that point where they've run out of resources, it would be multiple hospitals approaching the committee and stakeholders at that point? Correct. Um, what the normal situation would be is in regular times, the hospital would reach out to other hospitals either in their area or a little further outside of their area. Um, this being something that's happening across the state, though, there's not going to be a good chance that any hospital has any extra capacity or any available units of really anything that they could give to other hospitals. So it would most likely be a couple of hospitals in a region um, would all face the same thing where they don't have any more hospital beds, they don't have any ventilators um, or something extreme like that. And to be clear, hospital beds aren't all created equal. So even if one of the more rural hospitals has a couple beds available, they might not have the ICU capacity to take care of one of the critically ill COVID or other patients. Correct. And that's something else that would change if these standards are activated is essentially if you aren't needed to have an isolation room, you could have nurses or practitioners or whoever examining you in something like a conference room that may be in the hospital. Um, basically any available room that they would have that would be used um, for patients at that point. And we've seen this in other states where they're using tents or parking garages and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that we've heard consistently from these public health districts is that it's the importance of a strong um, decisive decision when it comes to its time to declare crisis standards of care, and it may need to come quickly. Is the Department of Health and Welfare set up to do that? Um, well, today they are. The At the end of the meeting, they brought up some concerns that they may not have enough members to even constitute a quorum going forward. It's something that apparently there's a few seats empty. There are a couple members who are retiring. Um, Director Jeppesen said this is something that is on his mind. He talked to the governor two weeks ago about it. But unfortunately, if anything happens in the next couple of weeks, it looks like there is a possibility that they won't even have enough members to have a quorum to meet, let alone actually act on anything. All right, Devin Downey, thank you so much for your time. But there is a glimmer of hope. Idaho is scheduled to receive its first shipment of COVID-19 vaccinations next week. Idaho Immunization Program Manager Sarah Leeds joined me Friday to discuss what vaccination rollout will look like.
Thank you so much for joining us today. How many doses of the vaccination is Idaho going to get in this first round? We are getting 13,650 doses in Idaho with this first round that we anticipate next week. When you say next week, is that going to be uh, an even distribution statewide midweek? What's that going to look like? Yeah, so we are able to put our order in for those doses. And um, as you may have known, may know that those trays that the Pfizer dose comes in a minimum shipment of 975 doses. Um, and so those we, we have allocated that first round on a population healthcare worker population base in each um, public health district or their region. It doesn't seem like like 13,000 doses is going to be enough to cover the healthcare workers in Idaho. So how do you decide which of the healthcare workers get that first, that very, very first dose? Yeah, it's not even close to being enough to cover all our healthcare workers who may need it and want it. Um, we, we have a, corona, a COVID-19 vaccine advisory committee that was formed uh, back in the fall at the request of Governor Little. And they are a very, it's a large group that represents a wide range of um, professions and medical background, um, folks who represent um, maybe hard to reach populations and um, our, our tribes, uh, the Hispanic population. And so it's a very, we have ethicists and ethicists on the committee. And so quite a wide range of, of people on that committee who is who are providing us guidance in as we uh, make several decisions about vaccine distribution and prioritizing the population um, of healthcare workers and essential workers is, are the things they're helping us tackle. And so um, we are mirroring the, the work that we do and the data we provide them to help them make their decision on um, CDC has an advisory committee on immunization practices that has put out um, some very large tiers of priority. And so what they decided was to break those groups into phase 1A, phase 1B, and phase 1C. And so in phase 1A right now, we are um, in Idaho, our COVID vaccine advisory committee have identified those frontline healthcare workers, both inpatient uh, and outpatient who work with COVID, you know, COVID positive patients and are treating them. Um, and also long-term care facility residents and staff. And so that's quite a large number of individuals that we will need doses for um, to get them vaccinated. We've talked about this first round that we're receiving in the next week, but do we have the timetable for when we're going to receive the second round or third round? We do. Uh, we, we have some tentative dates for our next doses of Pfizer. And, um, and we also have con a confirmation for our first allocation of Moderna uh, vaccine. And so assuming everything goes well uh, and goes on schedule with Moderna's uh, EUA application and their, um, their review by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, we anticipate Moderna doses um, the following week, uh, week of December, I think it's 20th. Is that that Monday? It, you know, as we're talking about this, there are the, the obvious high priority groups, but as far as the general population goes, when will the rest of Idaho be able to expect uh, that ability to get the vaccination? 
Yeah. So when you ask that, do you mean our, you know, just say you and I, like we're, you know, with no not healthcare um, workers, right? Not healthcare yeah. workers, not long-term care facility residents, not teachers, um, you know, a, a grocery store worker, the general public. Yeah. Um, well, grocery store workers are actually in those um, group of essential workers. Um, but folks like, I'll use myself as an example. Um, I'm able to telecommute. Um, and, and I, you know, so I'm kind of one of the people who are probably last in line um, for the vaccine. And so there's a lot of factors that, that play into when, to, when we say that might be available to folks, folks like me and you. Um, we, you know, it's, it depends on how many Idahoans uh, want, want the vaccine and also how many doses are kind of in the pipeline. And so that um, right now we know Pfizer and Moderna um, are really coming down the pike and, and probably very soon in our state. And there are some others uh, that are in clinical trials that we anticipate being approved soon, um, you know, in, in 20, early 2021. And so depending on how, many, how much production there is of those vaccines, we are, very roughly estimating that the general population may be able to get the vaccine as soon as um, maybe spring, late spring, and um, maybe early summer, midsummer. You know, there's just so many things to, so many variables that play into that. You, you said it depends on how many Idahoans might want the vaccine. So to be clear, are there going to be mandates, whether for adults or children, to have to take the COVID-19 vaccination? There will not. Um, you know, we, the, the state of Idaho is is very much about this being a choice, um, an individual choice to get the vaccine. You know, when we talk about statewide distribution, are the rural areas and hospitals ready to receive and distribute that vaccination? You know, I think yes. And and we still, even, you know, this weekend and next week, we are, the immunization program is providing education to those vaccinators and those um, frontline healthcare workers who will be doing the vaccination. Um, we are working to get them very uh, up to speed. Pfizer in particular, because it has those, um, it's an ultra cold vaccine. It is something that we don't typically work with. Um, it's stored at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius, and it is shipped in thermal thermal shipping containers that require dry ice. Um, and if they're going to be taken out of those thermal shipping containers, they need an ultra cold storage uh, freezer. And so uh, Pfizer has um, has created this thermal shipping container that can be used kind of as a temporary uh, freezer for up to 30 days with dry ice, with adding dry ice every, you know, particular in a, in a prescribed time frame. And so those are the things that we are trying to make sure our, our vaccinators understand and know and that they're ready up to speed. And, and they will be, I have every confidence in them. You know, and while we're talking about that distribution effort, is it going to be a statewide top-down plan or is it going to be like other parts of Idaho's COVID-19 approach where each of the seven public health districts have their own strategy for that distribution? Yeah, that's a great question. So Idaho has our, our uh, a vaccine, uh, vaccine distribution plan and implementation plan. And our local public health districts also have plans we really work in partnership with them because our seven health districts are independent. Idaho has a decentralized public health system. And so they are autonomous. 
and work, you know, we, we walk this, this path shoulder to shoulder with them. We work, we let them know how many doses we think uh, we can allocate to them. And then they tell us where they think they ought to go and, and we help them be ready for that. And so it is, is very much a collaboration between state and local public health. And I guess one of the most important questions of all, as we are receiving and distributing the vaccination in Idaho, does that vaccination in the meantime replace the need for other mitigation strategies like mask wearing and social distancing? Yeah, and it does not right now. I know all of us, all of us want to drop the masks and be able to get together in, in groups, but but right now we really need folks, even after they're vaccinated and that time frame that we know, you know, we know the Pfizer vaccine, the data says that your immunity is incredibly high um, seven days after your second dose. And so um, even though the data shows that we really need everyone, even though they've been vaccinated, to wear masks and continue to practice all those behaviors that we've been talking about um, all along in the hand washing, wearing the mask, um, staying home when you're sick, because um, we really don't know at this point whether even though you're immune to uh, COVID, whether you could be carrying it and spreading it. There's still um, you know, quite a bit of data that we do need. And so um, we do need folks to practice that for at least a while longer. All right, Sarah Leeds, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Normally this time of year, shoppers are crowding into stores to wrap up their holiday shopping, but of course, this isn't a normal year. Sean Berger, CEO and president of the Twin Falls Area Chamber of Commerce and a Twin Falls City Councilman, joined me for an update on how businesses in his area are faring and how he views the local control approach to virus management. Can you tell us what you're hearing from businesses you work with in Twin Falls? You know, uh, 2020 has certainly been a, a roller coaster year for all of us, and uh, it's adapted from March through the summer and into now. Uh, you know, but generally, I think there is business optimism. Certainly, we all have our personal challenges, and we're we're dealing with the uncertainty of the virus and its impacts. But you know, overall, uh, shopping activity seems to be continuing relatively normally. Um, I think a lot of our local businesses have adapted to the way they interact with their customers. So maybe it's more curbside pickup now, or they're doing delivery, or you can call the local mom and pop shop and figure out what you need for Christmas and go pick it up. Uh, so overall, I think there is optimism in spite of the general uncertainty happening in the world right now. But you don't just work with small businesses, with, uh, with storefront shops. You also work with some of the larger employers like Chobani and Cliff Bar and some of the value-added ag industry in Twin Falls. What are you hearing from them? So I think one of the advantages we have in the Magic Valley is that agricultural base. It tends to weather the ups and downs of, of economic swings uh, better than, than uh, more retail-oriented businesses. Um, but again, those those employees are a critical part of the economy as well. And so we've seen uh, the virus move into some of these employers. They've had employees who are sick. They have quarantining that's going on. Uh, I think maybe in October-ish, that was probably a greater challenge. Uh, we were seeing kind of upticks in the, in the number of cases here. I think that has stabilized a bit. And uh, those employers are able to keep a consistent workforce uh, as they've had to adapt some of their operations as well. 
as we're looking forward nine months into this, we still have a little ways to go. What are your biggest concerns with the coming months? I really think the uncertainty of um, the impacts, it, it, again, I think it's impacting us all in our personal lives and certainly in our professional lives. I look back at March, April, when we had sort of um, consistent rules that we were hearing from the governor's office. I think uh, everybody was sort of on the same page of let's hunker down and let's do what we can. As summer came, people made their own personal choices to do different things. Now we're seeing sort of this patchwork of regulations at the, the local level, maybe amongst health districts. Um, th that inconsistency is challenging to deal with. Um, I appreciate people having to make their own personal choices and, and make those decisions about how they're interacting with others to help slow the spread of the virus. But it, it's just been really uncertain. And I think as we look at the winter months now, people certainly are more indoors. Uh, that unknown is challenging. I mean, even for our own business as a chamber of commerce, you know, we're looking at the inability to do events and activities probably for the first few months of the year. Um, and that impacts our bottom line as well and our ability to do our job. Let's talk a little bit about that patchwork approach because you also sit on the Twin Falls City Council. The governor has really emphasized local control when it comes to the virus, but statewide we have seen pushback on local government entities that even recommend mask, man mask mandates and other mitigation efforts, uh, much less enforce them or uh, mandate them. And so do you wish that there were a more unified effort from your public health district, um, or do you appreciate that local control that you have as a Twin Falls City Council member? You know, I can I can certainly understand that Twin Falls is different than Salmon, is different than Kuski, is different than Coeur d'Alene. Uh, so I can understand maybe not having this statewide uh, approach but as you noted, even within our own health districts, we're seeing this inconsistency and sort of struggle. Uh, and as, as we know here in the Twin Falls area, we're, we're all a very fluid valley. Um, you know, our population doubles in the city of Twin Falls on any given day because of the influx from folks from the surrounding communities. So I do think it would be helpful uh, if we had those more consistent regulations. Although I will say the recommendations that we're hearing today are very much the same as the recommendations we were hearing back in March and April when we were under the stay-at-home order. And it does come down to those personal choices and personal decisions about whether people are doing those things or not. So uh, do, I, do I wish it were more consistent? Yes. Frankly, I think like all the rest of us, I just wish we weren't having to go through this because it's just really hard to, to manage and figure out how to, how to adapt and and respond to the things around us to try to do the right thing and keep all of us healthy and safe. As we go into the 2020 legislative session, what does the Idaho Chamber Alliance hope that the legislature does for businesses in Idaho? Yeah, so we'll be having our uh, Chamber Alliance meetings coming up in the next week or so to kind of look at what our, our, our agenda is for the upcoming session. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have those same kinds of issues that we always have. We'll be looking at uh, opportunities to cut taxes uh, that help to support business, certainly helping uh, employers support their employees. Um, uh, often our strategy is uh, we, we hope they get in, set the budget and go home because that way uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to do other things. So uh, while I don't have any specifics right now, you know, we'll continue to have that 
that platform of supporting business, being a business-friendly state, uh, really capitalizing on some of the bright spots that we do have going with our economy, with growth, with relocation to the area, uh, and making sure that we have that, that stability moving forward. All right, Sean Berger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for watching. One quick note, last week we said offhand in our pundits panel that we thought new Senate Assistant Majority Leader Abby Lee was the first woman in Senate GOP leadership history. We were wrong about that and we apologize. Betsy Russell will have more in her Sunday column. Check it out in the Idaho Press. And we'll see you back here next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.